All right. Last week, we began a new series going through the book of Jonah. We actually went through the entire book last week, so you didn't miss the series, though. Don't worry. Uh, But it's a very short book. It's only four chapters. It's two pages in that blue Bible right there. So if uh, if you missed last week, the video's not up online yet, but you could just read those two pages and you'll be caught up. Uh, and, And so through this series, that was my goal was I wanted to cover the whole story and one Sunday, and, and I went a little long last week, I don't think I'm going to this week, I'm pretty sure, I got my, my timer right there, we're good. And, uh, and for the rest of the series, my goal is to, to pull different themes from that entire text, that we can learn different aspects about who God is and kind of what uh, his plans are for our lives and kind of how he works in our lives, that, that that's what we you know, are, are going to be doing th- through the rest of the series. And uh, this week specifically, I want to point out in this story how God was working in Jonah's life actively, that he was, a, he was a present force, that he wasn't just passive, but he was actively at work in Jonah's life throughout the whole text. I mean, you probably could remember one or two situations yourself, but I went through and kind of, you know, wrote them down for us, so we're going to take a look at those, that, that God reigns supreme, right? Some of those songs we're talking about, God's sovereign nature, the fact that he reigns over us, the fact that he has authority and power. And, and we see this about God in the book of Jonah. This is one of the things that we see in this text. And, and God reigned supreme throughout Jonah's life. No matter where he ran, where he fled to, there was no way that he could get out of God's kingdom. There was no way he could find his way out of a place where God was reigning, where God was in control. Because wherever Jonah went, he was within God's universe and God, having made the universe, he's got authority to rule that universe. And he also, being powerful enough to make all of creation, he's also powerful enough to do as he wills within his creation, right? That, that's what we see. So, so the idea today is, is sovereignty. So a sovereign is, uh, is anyone, a person who has supreme power or authority. All right, so we don't have anyone that would fit that description in the United States, right? The way our government doesn't work that way. But in terms of God's kingdom, God is our good God reigning king, and he's powerful, right? He's, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And he has authority to use that power. He's not restricted uh, in any way other than by his own word, by his own promises, which is interesting. I, didn't, I don't know if you realize that God can't do anything uh, because the only thing he's limited by is what he's already said he won't do or can't do, right, or anything that he's promised. He can't break his promises. So that's the only limiting factor on his power. But other than that, he's, he's got full authority to do whatever he wants. So here, here's a quote that I pulled from, like, this little Bible study thing. It says, The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control, and that nothing happens without his direction or permission. God works not just some things, but all things according to the counsel of his own will. His purposes are all-inclusive and never thwarted. Nothing takes him by surprise. The sovereignty of God is not merely that God has the power and right to govern all things, but that he does so always and without exception. Right? And so, so this is the God that we worship, one who is, who is powerful and has authority over all of creation, including whether we like it or not, including our lives, including our lives. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he even said, right, to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That we want to see God's kingdom come 
right? That we want to see God establish his reign perfectly and effectively in all of our lives, that we're inviting his reign into our lives. So we're inviting that type of rule and reign because uh, whether we realize it or not, even if I'm actively opposed to God's reign, he still accomplishes his will as he, see, he sees fit, right? And that's, that's well, you can study the Bible in your own time for that. But, but let's take a look in the book of Jonah at a few moments when God shows up throughout this story. A few moments where God says, oh, I did that, or I caused that. Where God is not a passive God, but is active and present in Jonah's life, even in the moments of Jonah's disobedience and running from the presence of, of God. So, so here, I've, I've got like a list of things that we're going we're gonna to go through and examples I'll put up on the screen. So the first thing that demonstrates God's rule and reign in the book of Jonah was that God commanded Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, Amittai, something like that, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. Right? So point one in God's sovereignty, rule, and reign was that God had the authority to give a command to Jonah. And he had the, the reasonable expectation for Jonah's obedience, even though Jonah fled and disobeyed this command. So that's the first point. The second time we see God's rule and reign is that God controlled the weather, that God controlled the storm while Jonah's on this boat heading in the opposite direction. Verse four said, but the Lord, so God's taking credit for this. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So God had rule and reign even over the wind and the waves. Right, that God was in control of even that, right? That this was part of his creation, that God made right, the sea and the land and the heavens, right? That God has authority and power to do as he will, right, in those, in those realms, right? That God can do what he wants. And, and we even see examples of this. We'll take some, a look at the New Testament later. But even like other ones in the Old Testament, like God also demonstrated power over storms in, you know, with Noah and the flood, right? That God can... Do as he wills uh, in terms of the weather. <clears throat> Another example that uh, in the book of Jonah, God doesn't explicitly take credit for it, but I do want to point out that God was in control of this moment. Is uh, I'll read it, Jonah 1 7, because the sailors are all nervous about the storm. They're like, why aren't, you know, everyone should be crying out to their God that we, you know, would get out of the situation? And they end up rolling dice to determine who's guilty, which is probably not the way that you or I would determine guilt in a situation, but that's what they did. And Jonah 1 7 said, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, it doesn't say God caused the dice to roll on Jonah, right? God didn't, it didn't say that the short straw, God made the short straw draw up with Jonah. It doesn't say that, but I want to point you to this verse in Proverbs 16, <coughs> which is a book of wisdom. It's a really cool book of the Bible. It's like fortune cookie snippets of wisdom. It's great stuff. But Proverbs 16, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So although it didn't explicitly say it in the book of Jonah, God does take credit. He says, listen, you roll the dice. I'm in control of that even. Like I'm even the one that's in authority over what ends up on what, you know, what number lands on that die when you roll it. So God takes credit for that. <coughs> right? So God was in control of that. Uh, another moment that God doesn't explicitly take credit for in the book of Jonah. So there's this crazy storm raging. They end up throwing Jonah into the ocean. 
Maybe you remember this. You probably think that's a little harsh. I don't know, but Jonah told them to. It's weird. Jonah also wasn't like emotionally the most stable at this moment. But uh, actually, yeah, go to verses 15 and 16. Do I have that one up there? I hope. Yeah, there we go. Bam. 15, 16. Bam. There we go. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Now it doesn't say God caused the storm to stop storming and brewing, right? It doesn't say God stopped or calmed the waves. But the sailors, they knew exactly who caused that, right? They, they were able to read into these circumstances like, all right, we know who's in charge of this moment, right? Because then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They're like, okay, Jonah's God is God. Even though Jonah's not serving him, I'm going to serve this God because he knows what's up. He is in control of everything. So I want to serve this God. Uh, so I want to point out that God not only caused the storm, but he caused the storm to cease, uh, and we'll also see that an example in the New Testament later. All right, here we go. Here's, here's the one thing that right, you probably remember from the book of Jonah from Sunday school is uh, verse 17, that God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And this is where you're like, all right, Brian, really? Like, I don't know about this one, Brian. Uh, really? This is what we believe? And yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is what we believe. That we serve a powerful God, uh, and we believe he has the power to do this, that Jesus himself referenced the book of Jonah and taught it as though it really happened. Uh, so, so we do believe this, and God has authority over the fish. In other translations, it doesn't just say appointed. Other ones say that the Lord provided a great fish or that the Lord arranged a great fish, right? Or the Lord prepared a great fish. So, so I just want to point out that God somehow got this fish in the right place at the right time with a Jonah-sized hole in its belly to hold a man for three days. I don't know how it worked, okay? I'm not saying it makes sense, but I know that God can do it. All right. I'm not saying like I could go like put on a fish and like hang out inside of it for three days and live. I'm saying that according to like the properties of science and everything, the laws of nature, uh, this would categorize as a miracle, not as a regular everyday sort of thing that you could just do. Uh, And just because, uh, which just so you're aware, we as Christians, we do believe in in science and physics and predictable things. uh, And it's our belief in those things that points us to believe when miracles happen, all right? So, so like when Jesus, uh, you know, was first conceived in the Virgin Mary, they knew that wasn't a normal thing. They knew that was a miracle because that's not where babies come from. Like, babies can't happen without other things happening. So it's because they knew what, is, what to expect. It's because they believed in the patterns and rules of nature that they were able to recognize when God was intervening. All right, so, so it doesn't mean like I'm expecting like completely abstract, random things to happen. There is a predictability that God has ordained within the universe, but there are also moments when he can perform miracles, when he, is, he demonstrates his power in the things that he does, and he has authority to do those things. So in terms of this fish, we'll talk about this fish for a little bit today. I, I want to point out that, that God's in charge of the fish, okay? God's in charge of all of the fish, all right, he ain't Neptune, he's in charge of everything, but he's in charge of the fish included. He, he made the fish. He made the fish with the ability to reproduce as they do, right? To, to coordinate as they do, to have instincts as they do. And uh, God takes credit for making the fish. I don't know if you knew this, but Genesis 1, verses 20 to 23, God made the fish on the fifth day. He made the creatures of the deep, right? God made all of the things that live in the ocean, 
God made those things. So if he made those things out of nothing, I believe that God could command those things. I believe that God could also like tell those things where to go. And that's what he takes credit for in the book of Jonah. That appears to be the case. <clears throat> now, last week we had a Jasmine here and she asked the question, wasn't it a whale? Brian, was it a whale or a fish? And I was like, aha, she's paying attention, right? Because you probably heard, right, Jonah in the whale is maybe the way it's been presented to you. And I would say that it's, it could have been a whale. But uh, in, in Matthew chapter 12, in the King James Version, when Jesus mentions this story, this passage, this moment, the King James Version does use the word whale. But the rest of the Bible uses the word fish, and our translation uses the word fish. It's just things that swim. And, and it just... Bear with me here. I, th- I find like these interesting trends within scripture where we can kind of see the way that God thinks about things or the way he perceives his creation, the way he categorizes things. But, but God's category for, for life and animals and fish and plants or whatever is a little different than the way that man's current taxonomy is. Right, because man's taxonomy—it's kind of the the current state of it—is is primarily influenced by uh, some theories that came out in like the middle 1800s. Right, it's based on kind of evolution, the tree of life sort of idea. So we categorize well, like whales—they got you know they got hair, they got they lactate, they give live birth. They're in the mammal category. They're not a fish, and I agree with you if we categorize them by those things. But the Bible, when it says fish, God categorizes things not according to like mammals and amphibians and all that. He categorizes them like an engineer would. He thinks about uh, their function and their mobility. That in Genesis 1, when God made these things, he's like, oh, let me make all the things that swim. And let me make all the things that fly. And let me make all the things that walk and creep on the ground. God thinks about animals in terms of, of their mobility in terms of their function. So he thinks about them like an engineer. Like, you know, if you're making a boat, it goes on the water. If you make a car, it goes on the land. You make an airplane, it goes in the sky. That's the way that God thinks about animals, all right? And this, this is, I've got biblical reasons to point this out, right? Genesis 1 is, is part of it. <coughs> but I, wa- I want to, here's a side story to my side story here. <laughs> it's okay. I, I like thinking about this stuff. I'm, I'm amused at the way God thinks and the little things that he reveals in his word. Here's an example, okay? Uh, the, the company BMW, right, they make cars. They also made airplanes at one point. And at least one of their cars, they put an airplane engine in that car. So according to man's design, they might be like, oh, that car and that airplane, they like, you know, evolved together. One was the father of the other or something like that. Like they, they changed over time because there's this similar uh, component within those two things, right? But you also would say, well, one's clearly, they're, they're designed for two very different reasons, One's going to be an airplane, one's going to be a car, right? Yes, they have similar components, but they have different purposes, right? And that, that's something that we see within life today, that if you study biology, yes, there are similar components between species and creatures, all right? And yes, you might say, oh, well, this is the mammal family because they have these similar components. But there's also the issue that you have uh, the same type of component, arising multiple times in completely unrelated branches of the family tree. All right? So instead of what, you know, evolutionists might describe as common descent, where there's similar features that arose over time and all of their descendants had that feature, I would describe that as being common design, 
where you just have an engineer who's like, oh, I need some eyeballs. Oh, let's take some of these eyeballs, throw those in these creatures and these creatures. I need an animal that has echolocation, right? And it's not a problem for God to use that one common design across species that are completely unrelated according to the family tree because he's an engineer. He can just make them as he will. All right, so, so I just want to point that out that, that God categorizes things by design, that God categorizes, he says, so if he calls it a fish, he could have been talking about a whale. All right, and that, anyways, like the word whale, it's a translation from a Hebrew word anyway that probably just means the things that swim, the creatures of the deep. So, so that's, that's what I just want to point out. Whale or fish, I don't know. It also could have just been a completely new creature that God made in that moment. It might not be one that we have on earth today that we could be like, aha, that's the Jonah swallower right there, right? Like, no, no, no. it might've just been something that God made right then. And if you're like, wait a minute, Brian, are you telling me that God just made like a new species to swallow Jonah? Maybe, I don't know. It could have been a whale. I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm just up here saying it's a possibility and it's not outside the realm of biblical uh, presentation because Jesus, did you know that Jesus made fish? Before, did you know that Jesus made fish? You remember he multiplies the loaves and the fish? He didn't make those fish through normal reproductive means, I don't think. I don't think he's like, okay, you got 12 fish. Here, let's put them in this like little fish farm. Let's have them breed and we'll eventually get enough fish to feed everybody. I don't think he did that. I think it's likely that he made fully adult mature fish instantaneously. Right? Because I, I think it's also likely that they were dead the moment he made them. But he made these adults. It's, it's even possible they were already cooked. Right? Like, how awesome is that? So, like, if Jesus can make fish out of nothing with, by non-reproductive means, God could make a fish to swallow Jonah. Right? God prepared this fish somehow. I don't know if it was swimming around waiting for its purpose in life or if God just made it show up on the scene that day. I don't know, but I'm just saying it could have been either of those cases and I wouldn't be all that, you know, all that surprised. So whale or fish, doesn't matter. God defines things by their mobility, by their functionality. One last note on that idea because I forgot it. Just to give you case in point that this is the way that God at least presents the way he thinks about these things in the Bible. Uh, right? Birds and bats, we might say, right, bats are mammals. Birds are not bats. Bats are not birds, right? Vice versa. In the Bible, in both Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God actually categorizes a bat with the other birds. That doesn't mean that God's an idiot, right? It's just that he categorizes them differently. He thinks about them like an engineer. Let me read this verse from Leviticus uh, 11. He's talking about the, the birds that you shouldn't eat just so you're aware, which by the way, we can pretty much eat anything we want. We're at liberty in Christ nowadays. You can eat pork for Christmas. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. But Leviticus 11, it says this, and these things you shall detest among the birds. And then he lists uh, the eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the, the falcon, the raven, ostrich, all of these things. And then at the end of the list, he says, and the bat, that God throws the bat amongst this group of birds not to eat. Because really, it's not the word bird that's there. It's, it's flying creatures is all it is. So I just want to point out that God, just because the Bible says fish, doesn't mean like if it was a whale that suddenly, aha, the Bible's wrong. No, it's just that God thinks about it differently than we might today, right? God had a different branching category for those things. So God prepared a fish for Jonah. I don't know what that looked like, but he did it and he has the authority to do it. He has the power to do it. And really, yeah, I don't, 
I don't think that we could live in a fish for three days in its belly or whatever, but that's no more miraculous than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving like, you know, a few minutes in a fiery furnace without getting burned, without getting smoke even on them. All right, that's no more miraculous or less miraculous than Jesus spending three days in a tomb dead and coming back to life. And in fact, I'm not in this camp necessarily because I think Jonah was uh, conscious the whole time because even in chapter two, we saw he prayed to God while he was in the belly of this beast. Uh, But some people do believe that Jonah died while he was in there and then that God brought him back to life and spewed him out on the land. Some people think that. That's fine. I mean, the Bible doesn't say, so we don't, we don't teach what the Bible doesn't make clear, you know, so I just want to let you know, that could be a possibility. Could be a possibility. All right, so, so God prepares this fish, it swallows Jonah, and then not only did he have this fish do that, right, where he was at the right place at the right time, where Jonah's crying out like, God, help me, I'm going to drown, and then he's like, oh, I don't have a life preserver, but here's a fish, like, I'm going to throw it on you. But then later... God speaks to the fish. God takes credit for this moment, right? Verse, uh, chapter two, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it spewed or it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So God takes credit, his sovereignty. He has the ability to command this fish that he tells it where to do its thing. Uh, and, and I don't know about you, but like when your stomach's upset, it's just, it's happening where it's happening. And God somehow convinced this fish to go right against its instinct. Like you need to get to dry land and spew this man up on this, this beach. Right. And, and it did. Right. So God had authority to do that. And biblically God takes credit for that command. So, so I think that's neat that he did that. Uh, after that, God then gives another command because he's a reigning king. He's sovereign. He has authority with his stuff. That uh, in Jonah 3.1, God commands Jonah a second time, expecting his cooperation and obedience. This time Jonah gets, gets the idea of Jonah 3, right? And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. All right, but God's not done. God still is showing up in Jonah's life. God's still showing up. He's demonstrating his authority and his power consistently. Uh, you might remember, right, so Jonah goes throughout the city, the, the city repents, they, they turn back to God, they turn away from their evil ways, their violence, and then God's like, I'm not going to destroy them. And Jonah was upset about this uh, because he wanted to see like some fireworks uh, come down on this city, like he didn't like these people. It's, he had a heart issue, uh, an anger issue as well. But, uh, but after Jonah like preaches to the city and they repent. He then goes out into the desert to watch to see if in case he gets to see a firework show and God appointed a plant to grow, right? God commanded the fish. He can also command this plant to grow. All right. So check out Jonah four, six and the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So God has authority to command the plants, all right? God made the plants. I believe it's on, yeah, the third day in Genesis chapter one, verses 11 to 13. You can go check it out. God made the plants. So he's in charge. He's the boss of the plants. He can make them do what he wants. This is also not just a regular old plant. I don't think that God was uh, working through the regular means of plant reproduction and like had this, this seed waiting for Jonah to sit next to it and then shoot up and cover him in, from the sun the next day. Uh, this was a miraculous plant because later on in the story, we saw that this plant actually grew 
up overnight. Like it was, bam, single day's growth. It's up over Jonah, which is faster than even bamboo can grow. So it's faster than our fastest growing plants on earth today. Uh, This is a miraculous plant that God has the ability to command the plant. Another interesting thing is that God tells us why he made this plant grow, which like, this is, this is the sort of thing I love about the Bible. I love seeing like when I, when we find out these little glimpses as to why God does something, I find that amusing. I'm like, ah, God did that. Okay. He's, he let us know why. Cause we don't always know why it says he did this to save him from his discomfort. Right. Uh, I think it's second Corinthians one verses three and four that says that God is the source of all comfort. Right, that God is the source of all comfort. And God produced this plant specifically to give Jonah like a little time of refreshing because he was having like these anger issues and all sorts of stuff. That God produced an amount of comfort in Jonah's life. But I also find this interesting that God uh, seems to strategically bring discomfort or utilize discomfort in Jonah's life to shepherd Jonah's heart back to the loving heart of the Father. Because the plant only lasts for a day, maybe you remember that, uh, because next, God gives another command to one of Earth's greatest creatures, is he commands a worm, and God takes credit for commanding this worm, right? Uh, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered, and it died. So, so if God can command a great fish, he can also command a little little worm, right? I don't know if this is a worm or a caterpillar. I'm not sure what it would have been, but, but something caused that plant to wither and die. And I want to point that out that if God caused the plant to grow, to be comfort to Jonah, God also permitted and allowed and actively appointed discomfort in Jonah's life. And that in God's sovereignty, God is working through our comfort and our discomfort. Think about this. I was just, I added this to the sermon last night. God already got out of Jonah what he wanted. God told Jonah to go to preach to Nineveh to tell them to repent, right? Jonah's already done that at this point. Why is God still showing up in Jonah's life? Why is God still doing all of these things in Jonah's life? Because God is not simply interested in like some people just obey him and do what he asks. But God actually cares about Jonah's heart. God cares enough about Jonah, like, listen, Jonah, there's some attitudes in you, there's some behaviors in you, there's issues that you have that I want to free you from. And I might bring you through seasons of comfort and discomfort in order to free you from that. And I want to let you know that God might permit those sorts of things in your life and mine as a means to free us, right? To root out the root of bitterness, to to root out anger or other issues that we have. That yes, God is the source of all comfort, but here he seems to be actively bringing an amount of discomfort in Jonah's life. That's what God seems to be doing. And the least comfortable place uh, for you or I, if you're a follower of Jesus, is when Jesus tells us to do something and we say no. That is the least comfortable place as a believer. But the most freeing place is when we are walking in God's will for our lives. Yeah, he'll forgive us when we mess up, right? We can go to him and repent and apologize. He, right, cleanses us of all unrighteousness. But but we can have comfort and confidence, even in the midst of persecution from whatever we're facing in the world, that when we are following Jesus, we can have confidence in him, that we can have comfort with him, that he he is present in our times of need. And that's far better than being in a place of 
physical comfort while disobeying God. Right? That's a far better place to be. So God appointed this worm to attack this plant. God can do that. Uh, just so you know, God made the, the creeping things along, among the earth in a, on day six of creation in Genesis chapter one. So if God made them, God can reign over them. If God made them, God has authority to command even this little worm. Right? God, God seems to be doing that. And the next and last thing that God demonstrates his sovereignty and authority in, in the book of Jonah, is that he sends this scorching east wind. Right? You might remember that. That was at the end. It says, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. He asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Like I said, Jonah had some issues that he was working through. Right, that, that God was working through in Jonah. But I want to point out two things here. One, the sun rose. God ordained that. God made that, day four of creation in Genesis chapter one. God made the sun. Some things God can make happen in our lives based on the things that he's already set in motion. Right, That some things in Jonah's story are things that God didn't like intervene and be like, oh, I need the sun to rise this morning. No, no, no. God had already set that in motion. Day and night are going to continue as long as the earth remains. I'll show you that verse in a moment. Right? That God had preordained. He's, right? He's set the planets and the sun in motion, and that's just happening. But yet God can use even those things which he has preordained to fulfill his purposes. And then specifically, he intervenes in the fact that he takes credit for this strong, scorching east wind right? that brings this level of discomfort in Jonah's life. Right, that God takes credit for that. So God can work through both uh, present and active intervention, and he can also work what might appear more passively uh, in the fact that he preordains something to occur. So, so that's what we see, that God right, is working through both of those means. And this is actually the second time that God controlled the wind in this story. Right? God controlled the wind to start the storm, and God now controls the wind to, to try to shepherd Jonah's heart to bring him back to him, right? So that's what, that's what we see. God is in control of all of these things. So this is God the Father in control of all of these situations. And I want to point out that, that we believe in Jesus here, okay? Uh, it wouldn't be valuable for me to just teach like stories from the Old Testament if I didn't point you to who they were a shadow of. If I didn't, if I didn't point out the connection of the prophecy that was yet to be fulfilled when Jesus came. All right, and that Jesus... Just as God the Father demonstrates power and authority throughout the book of Jonah, that Jesus in his earthly ministry demonstrated the same type of power and authority over his creation. Right? John chapter 1 says that all things were made through Jesus. Right? Jesus is the one that made it. Uh, Colossians 1.16, I think, it says that, that all things are actually made through Jesus and sustained by Jesus. He's the one that keeps things going. All right, and that Jesus had this authority. I'm going to give you a couple examples, but I mean, think about, right, like I said, Jesus multiplying fish and loaves, right? Jesus walking on the water. But let's take a look at this one example here where Jesus demonstrates power and authority over his creation in Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 24 and 25. Right? The disciples and Jesus are in a boat, they're at sea, storm rolls in. Jesus is sleeping in the back. You might remember this story. And the disciples say, they, they go and wake him up. And they, woke, they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke 
and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Jesus had authority to do that because he is who he said he is, right? He is, in fact, God among us. He's Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, living as a man among us, right? So that Jesus had authority to command the creation that he made. Check out verse 25. This is interesting, right? And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid uh, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Now, these were a bunch of like Hebrew sailors. These were Israelites, right? Servants of, of God. And they know the answer to that question. Who would have authority to control the wind and the waves? Who would have authority to command them to do something and then have them actually obey him? These guys would have known the story of Jonah. They would have known the God that they serve. And they're like, wait a minute. There's an answer to this question that if we're wrong, it is blasphemous if we are wrong about who we think this guy might be. Right? Like that would be kind of like, I think, is it possible like he's the creator of the universe that's hanging out in the boat with me right now? <laughs> like that would be kind of a scary thing to think about. But, but they realize, wait a minute. There's something different about this guy. There's only one person who has the authority and the power to do that, right? And they're starting to connect the dots. So, so Jesus demonstrated authority over creation in that way, right? The wind and the waves. Here's another example where he controls uh, the creatures that he made. Luke 5, verses 1. Uh, I'll read this little story. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus is just teaching by the lake. It says uh, the lake of Gennesaret. This is also the Sea of Galilee. Same lake. It's got two names. I mean, you guys understand that around here. We got Lake Wideham, Harriman Reservoir. It's it's the same lake. Uh, I don't know if you realize. Same thing in the Bible here. Uh, And he saw two boats by the lake, and the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from the land, and he taught, uh, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So it kind of created like a little natural amphitheater there for him to preach from. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Verse 5. And Peter, or Simon answered, he's also Peter. He also had two names in the Bible. You guys tracking this? Okay, here we go. Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat uh, to come in and help them, right? And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men, right? Or I will make you fishers of men. You might remember that translation. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So from this little story, I want to point out, Jesus spoke with authority, right? He was teaching the word of God, and he spoke with authority, even like commanding Peter. He's like, hey, get back in your boat and cast down the nets. And he's like, all right, I guess I'll try this. I mean, right now, all I think this guy is some rabbi, some teacher, but sure. And Jesus, whether by commanding these fish to swim into the net 
or knowing precisely where they were, they end up pulling in this huge haul of fish. I want to point out, if God the Father can command one big fish, he can also, through Jesus, command hundreds of little ones, right? I don't think that's too hard for him. He could do that. So, So Jesus seems to demonstrate this authority. And when Peter recognizes who Jesus is, he's like, wait a minute, I don't deserve to hang out with this guy. Like, I'm a sinful man. Like, he should not be in my boat. Like, what is he doing? Like, I don't deserve to have his company. Right? That Peter recognized that who he was and that he had issues and he should not be hanging out with God because God is holy and he is not. But yet Jesus wants to hang out with Peter. Right? This is elsewhere, other gospels telling the same story. He says, right, come follow me. Jesus wants to hang out with Peter. Just like God used Jonah, this reluctant prophet that was disobedient, Jesus wanted to use broken, sinful people like Peter. Jesus wants to use people that are imperfect like you and I who make a lot of mistakes and the same mistakes over and over. <laughs> right? Like Jesus wants to use us for his glory. God wants to work through us. And even though Peter didn't feel worthy, Jesus wanted to work through him anyway. So I want to point this out, right? God is sovereign over our lives. Everything in our lives, God is in, he's in control, right? God is, God is reigning king. He is supremely in charge of every area of our lives, right? Every area. We see that in Jonah's case, right? And we see that with Jesus and Peter, but, but God rules all. And, and Jonah's experienced God working in his life. Even when Jonah was fleeing from God, other people were still seeing the God who Jonah was fleeing from and turned to serve this God. Right? That God is at work in our lives even when we're serving him and even when we're not. That God is still in control of our lives. Right? The Bible says that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Right? That God is in charge of that. That God has the ability to take even the, the evil decisions of wicked people. That God can turn those choices for good. That God's orchestrating those moments. Right? That, that God not only is in charge of the things that he commands and obey him, but he's in charge of the, the people he commands who disobey him, and he can still accomplish his will in the world that he made. Right? Like, isn't that crazy that he can do that? Right? God can even use our suffering for his good. Right? Paul said that uh, you know, the suffering of this present age is nothing to be compared with the eternal weight of glory yet to be revealed in us. Right? That God's able to use all of those moments to accomplish his will. That God is in charge of our lives. That when we read the story of Jonah, I want you to realize, listen, God is in control. Right? That should hopefully take a lot of weight off your shoulders. Like, all right, <laughs> he's got this. Right? He's got this. And God is interested in using your life to proclaim his goodness to all the world, right? That God has authority to do that. And, and even if we're disobedient, God's going to use you to proclaim his goodness to all the world. It's crazy the way he does that. And, and I want to point out, just as God had made the fish he had, and had authority to command them, right? Just as God had made the seas and had authority to command them, just as God had made the plant and the worm and had authority to command them, I want to let you know also on day six, God made man, right? He made woman, right? He made us. And if he made us, he has authority to command us, 
I know, like, we don't like that, right? I'm not the only one where my flesh is like, like, I don't like that. But, but it's true. And as the worship team comes up, I want to take a look at Matthew 28. We've looked at this verse a lot, but it's good. It's a good verse. It's where we get our mission statement from. In Matthew 28, Jesus speaking. Notice what Jesus says about himself here, right? Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Seems like he recognizes the fact that he, he's in charge of things, right? He's made this evident up to this point in their lives. He's, he's already risen from the dead at this point. Seems like this guy, he knows what's up. And out of that authority, he gives us a command. Jesus is sovereign over us, and he gives us a command with reasonable expectation that we should obey, that it would be wise for us to obey. This is what he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Right? Once again, he has authority. He gets to call the shots. Jesus makes the command. And then check this out. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That wherever we go, just like Jonah trying to flee from the presence of God, wherever he went, he couldn't find a place where God was not in control. Like it didn't exist. No matter where he went, he couldn't find a place where God's reign was not supreme, where God could not command all of the environment around Jonah, right? That wherever he went, God was with him. And that's what Jesus promises us too, wherever we go. Because God didn't call us to a city like Nineveh, Right? Some of us he called to, to be here in the valley, but he told all of us to go to the nations. Right? He told all of us to go to the nations, to go into the world and to make disciples. Right? That's what God wants us to do. That's the mission that we have. And that wherever we go, we don't need to fear because he is with us. So let's pray. And I'm assuming the worship team is going to be good before we, we get going. This will be fine. We'll have fun. We'll have fun. We're, we're good. We're good. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, that you love us, that you pursue us, that you are ascending God, that you sent your son because you loved us so much, that you sent him into this world to pursue us, to seek and save the lost, to, to die for sinners like us, that he wanted to redeem us into your family. So God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to do that. We thank you that Jesus, you likewise, are a sending God, that you send us into this world, and that we now have the choice like Jonah, do we obey or do we flee? And God, that we know that we can trust that whichever decision we make or how infrequently we obey, that you are still in control of our lives, that you are in fact working all things out for our good. And that whatever we face, you are present with us. You are the ever-present help in time of need. And so we ask you, God, that you would equip us for the works that you've called us to. We thank you that you have foreordained us to walk in these good works. And that it's not in these good works that we find salvation, but it's in trusting in you and the sacrifice you made on our behalf. But out of that salvation, we now follow and obey you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.